distance balls. Sure, they go far, but do they do anything else? The new ERC Soft does. Callaway completely reinvented the way a distance ball performs. Engineered with a new, fast, hybrid cover and a graphene-infused dual soft-fast core, it's a new kind of distance ball, one that actually feels soft and spins more. And once you're on the green, ERC Soft's triple track technology will help you dial in your alignment. Get Callaway's longest ball with soft feel today at callawaygolf.ca. Justin Trudeau's Liberals may have won the most seats in Monday night's election, but you can't say that anybody won. Whether it was the Conservatives failing to capitalize on liberal scandal, the NDP failing to capitalize on a positive campaign by Jagmeet Singh, or the Liberals failing to capitalize on being the incumbent government, didn't go as planned. I'm Dave Breckenridge, and this is 10-3. Stuart Thompson from the National Post joins me and will break down the results. Don't forget you can subscribe to this show wherever you get your audio, whether it's Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Stitcher, and we'd love it if you could leave us a rating and a review. So, Stuart, after many, many weeks of mudslinging and accusations and blackface scandals, we've wound up kind of where people thought we were going to wind up, with a liberal minority government. But... How exactly did we wind up here? Yeah, I I mean, right now we're looking at a pretty, pretty beefy liberal minority. I mean, they're pretty close to 170. So if you're a liberal and you have come to terms with the fact that you are going to have a minority government, this is probably the least worst uh, version of that. I think right now they're probably looking at the SNC-Lavalin affair as a pretty serious scandal the likes of which could bring down a government pretty easily. And then they're looking at the blackface scandal that erupted in the middle of the campaign as maybe one of the worst case possibilities of a campaign scandal. And they're saying, well, we're pretty close to a majority government. We're about, you know, a dozen seats away from having retained our majority. So I think if you're an objective liberal supporter or partisan you probably have to be pretty happy with that right now based on what could have happened. But really, mm-hmm. I think what the story is, is that all of these scandals that happened probably just chipped away at their popularity. The conservative campaign, I mean, I don't think we're at a time yet where we can do a proper postmortem. I don't think I would presume to do that now. But for whatever reason, it didn't really connect. Um, even in the Atlantic provinces, there were some seats that they would have hoped that they could win. Uh, of course, they ran up the score in the prairies, but um, they just didn't get those seats in Ontario. And I know conservatives will be blaming Doug Ford for it, but you know the chatter is already starting to to start right now about you know is it really Doug Ford? Is that could that be the only um, thing we blame for this, or were there deeper problems in the campaign? Well, it, it looks like you know the conservatives kind of have a base, and they have that base locked up. And they need to expand the base. And it it doesn't appear as though Andrew Scheer was able to bridge that divide with some voters. And so despite the liberals being very disliked, or maybe the Trudeau uh, head of the liberals being very disliked, Andrew Scheer just couldn't like expand on the base. Do you get that sense that that's what was going on with the conservative campaign? Yeah. And, you know, I'm sorry to use a sports analogy there, but anybody who watches football um, knows what a game manager quarterback is. That's the guy who he goes out there, 
He's not going to lose you the game, but he's not going to win you the game either. He's not going to do anything um, spectacular, but he's going to just be conservative with a small C um, and, and not take any big risks. And mm-hmm. that was the kind of the campaign that the conservatives thought could win it. But there was a few things that, you know, they were kind of curveballs thrown at them, which is that the block was resurgent. So something that, you know, I, I think they weren't expecting is that the block ate into what they hoped they could win in Quebec. The other side of it was Ontario, where, you know, we did a poll, actually, Post Media commissioned a poll on the Doug Ford effect. And, you know, there is something there. Um, people who don't like Doug Ford are taking it out on Andrew Shear. And um, whether those people would ever have voted for Andrew Shear, anyways, is a question you could ask. Um, I think some conservatives will say those are people who wouldn't have voted for him anyways. But you know, I'm looking at Lisa Raitt losing her seat in Milton tonight, and Lisa Raitt is one of the most effective conservatives in Parliament. Um, mm-hmm. She was in the leadership race. She lost to Andrew Shear, but she's always been sort of, you know, at the front bench. Something was going on for her to lose. She was going up against a star candidate. The Liberals had a, a gold medal Olympic kayaker against her, but that's not going to be the whole story. I think there was something else going on in Ontario. So, you know, Shear was a game manager, and I, I think probably the way the electoral winds were blowing, they needed something more than that. So, you know, you, you look at Ontario and, and the Doug Ford effect could be uh, having an effect there. The conservative campaign may not have been as strong as they had hoped there. And in Quebec, you kind of had a resurgent block taking a whack at everybody. Like not just the conservatives hoping to gain some seats there, but also to the expense of the liberals and to the expense of the NDP. What what exactly, you know, at the end of the day, does this say about what Quebec voters want? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question because I, I maybe there's a lagging indicator here, but you don't see this this as a rise in separatism. Like I don't think that we are headed towards a referendum. Those may be famous last words, but that doesn't seem to be what the polling suggests. I, I think maybe what we're looking at here is that Quebec feels a little bit embattled about Bill 21 and some other issues. And I think Bill 21 is the most interesting one because that's the bill that um, the secularism bill that bans religious symbols for some public servants. And, you know, that has 71% support in Quebec. And Every single day, almost, I watched almost all of the press conferences. Um, part of my job at the National Post was to do a live story every day. The leaders were asked about Bill 21, and they were pushed by reporters, um, English-speaking reporters, to condemn it and say that it's discriminatory um, and tell voters what they are going to do when they get into power to battle that bill. And that may have been, you may perceive that as the right thing to do. And I think probably most of English-speaking Canada would say that's the right thing to do. But in Quebec, that bill enjoys 71% support. So Mm -hmm. there is something of a dichotomy there. um, And it shows you that if you're the bloc, and you're the only party that is a vocal proponent of that bill, maybe there's something else there. Maybe they are saying something to Quebecers that Quebecers want to hear right now. Uh, And maybe it's just that Quebecers are feeling a little isolated right now. uh, and, And the bloc was sort of the avenue for that. But that, I think, definitely, I I was blaming that for some of the conservatives' um, struggles in Quebec. But you're absolutely right. It's affected all the parties. Now, you talk about a province that's feeling embattled out west on the prairies. Alberta um, has definitely not been a fan of the Trudeau liberals, possibly since 
the government was elected in 2015, um, and they've had a champion uh, in their fight against the Liberals in uh, United Conservative Premier Jason Kenney. Tonight, the Liberals appear to have lost all their seats in Alberta, um, and potentially the only non-conservative seat going to NDP candidate in Edmonton Strathcona. That's they're still counting votes as we're recording this podcast, but. What do you suppose is at stake now for a liberal minority government with no seats in Alberta, a four and a half billion dollar pipeline project that they're trying to get done and parties like the NDP and the Bloc who are very anti-pipeline holding a balance of power in parliament? Is this an, an issue that they can reach across the aisle to conservatives and, and get movement on or or do do they risk losing support from the other parties down the line because of it? Yeah, I mean, from Alberta's perspective, this is actually the nightmare scenario, which is they have no representation in the government at all. Um, some Albertans have been asking, I think, fairly what that got them, you know, having these, they had Sohi in cabinet and uh, Randy Boissano. Those two guys are gone now. For Albertans, it's going to be tough. And I think you will notice that all of the journalists around the Hill have been reading about uh, the 1972 election, where kind of eerily similar to this, which is that Pierre Trudeau was busted down to a minority government supported by the NDP. And there wasn't a lot. I, I think he actually had no Alberta um, representation then too. And that was when Peter Lougheed was writing fiery letters and making fiery speeches um, to Ottawa. And at that time, I think Pierre Trudeau got elected and th thought the most important thing for him to do uh, was reconciliation with Alberta. And, you know, Albertans can tell you how successful he was in doing that. But this is going to be a similar kind of scenario where there's going to be real cross purposes here. Jason Kenney, um, the last time I spoke to Alberta NDP leader, Rachel Notley, she told me that, look, Jason Kenney wants to run federally. And this is his avenue for doing that. And I'm a little skeptical of that theory. But Either way, that's politically a good way for Jason Kenney to make hay. Um, and right now, you're looking at a conservative party that they may be interested in ditching their leader. So there's going to be a lot of movement in conservative circles right now. And it's going to be the, the focal point, I think, will be Alberta. And I think if you're Justin Trudeau, you're probably not looking to win seats there in the next election. I don't think that's really a realistic probability. But mm -hmm. I think what you're trying to do is hold the country together and just make sure Alberta doesn't get to a point where, you know, Alberta separation has kind of been a joke lately, but yeah. that kind of sentiment festers and it grows. And I'm not saying separatism is something that's likely, but just that kind of burning vitriol is just really bad for the country. And I think the liberals should recognize that and they should be working to some kind of reconciliation with Alberta. Now, Looking at the the night as a whole, who do you think the biggest losers are in this election? Is it Jagmeet Singh and the NDP for, you know, not really capitalizing on a lot of positive messaging that he had during the campaign? Is it Justin Trudeau for being knocked down to a minority government? Or is it Andrew Scheer, who despite gaining seats, appears to be vulnerable as leader? Yeah, I think... For everyone you mentioned, what this comes down to is what um, version of the expectations do you believe? So if you're an NDP supporter, 
are you looking at what you were thinking in August about how you were basically trying to, you know, save the furniture? Um, or are you looking at how you felt last week, which is that you have a charismatic leader who is connecting with voters and people are suggesting you might get 40 seats. So you will have to look at what these parties and what the people in the parties think their real expectations were. And you'll probably find NDPers who think we probably should have had 40 seats. And then you'll find others who will say, we are so lucky that we don't have 10 seats right now. So I think probably the guy who's got the toughest sell is Andrew Scheer, because there are a lot of conservatives who think this was a golden opportunity. We had two huge scandals in 2019, Mm -hmm. two scandals that realistically could have sunk Justin Trudeau, and we didn't capitalize. Um, I think Andrew Scheer has a good case that he, there was a lot of other factors in his performance, but, you know, I, I think that to not even get more seats than the liberals, even in a minority situation, that's a big loss for them. And I think that's how conservatives are feeling tonight. Um, their expectations were higher than this. And if you look at the popular vote right now, as we're talking just around getting close to midnight Eastern time, um, it's almost deadlocked on popular vote. Mm-hmm. So if the seats were like that, then Andrew Scheer would have a better case. But the problem is they ran up the vote so high in Alberta that the popular vote doesn't give us a great indication of what really happened. So I, th- I think for the liberals too, it's an expectations game. If you talk to them um, the week before SNC-Lavalin broke this would be a disappointment for them. But after the year they've had, I think they're just going to take this and they're going to say, that's fine. We can work with this. Um, so I think when we get into these kind of postmortems, I think that's what people will be looking at is where should we have been and where did we end up and uh, how did we get there? Looking at some of the smaller parties, I guess you could call them fringe parties. We see one of them rising in seat count in the House of Commons, and we see another, we're bidding farewell to a a notable politician. So what can you tell us about the Greens and the People's Party of Canada? Yeah, I I think with the Greens, they will also see this as a bit of a missed opportunity. Snagging a few seats, though, I don't think that's a a loss for the Greens. Um, But it was a similar kind of thing with them, where you, if you're a Green Party supporter, will be looking at national polls, and you'll be looking at the the amount of support that you picked up and seeing it not translate into seats. And, you know, this this comes back to the argument about the electoral system and proportional representation, but it also comes down to how you campaign and strategically what are you doing. So I think if you're a Green, you're probably a little disappointed. Maxime Bernier underperformed his polls and, you know, he was at a nationally televised leaders debate and didn't seem to translate that into support. Um, so, you know, if you're a conservative and you were worried about some kind of insurgency from the right, um, from Maxime Bernier, if you're looking at the future of the party years down the road, I think conservatives will be thinking they dodged a bullet with that one. <laughs> so you know, they don't have to worry about that anymore. Maybe four years from now, we'll be looking at a, a new conservative party that will be sort of looking at the back. I mean, they'll be looking at Andrew Scheer beating Maxime Bernier by, you know, a percentage point in the leadership race too, and thinking they dodged a bullet there. So with Bernier out of the political scene, it does kind of change the map a little bit. Now, one of the things that uh, the conservatives were warning about in the final days of the campaign was the threat of a liberal NDP coalition. 
How much should Canadians be paying attention to that kind of warning now that the Liberals seem to have quite a strong minority? Is it a case that the Liberals will be looking for a formal coalition? Or do you expect that it may be more of an issue-by-issue basis um, of trying to gain support, kind of like uh, the Stephen Harper Conservatives did under their minority governments? Yeah, I think the latter is the the likeliest scenario where Jagmeet Singh will say, look, here's what we really care about. And these are the things that if you guys are planning a budget, you're going to have to pay attention to. And that seems to me to be a pretty likely scenario. Um, the NDP was having money problems. They were in bad bad shape before this campaign started. So, you know, God only knows where they'll be in a week's time. So I think they're going to be very unlikely to want to trigger a new election. So I'd imagine they'll be working together in that kind of basis. I I was asked, but there was a conservative strategist told me, you know, just go back and look at 72 and those um, conservative ND, the liberal NDP budgets that were being made. This is uh, Pierre Trudeau's minority government with the NDP. And in 74, you can notice a 30% increase in overall program spending. And that was at a time of, you know, revenue increases too. There wasn't a lot of debt associated with that, but mm-hmm. it was still an overall 30% increase in program spending. Um, at that time, the liberals were talking about a guaranteed income. And it wouldn't surprise me if these discussions start to repeat themselves. Uh, things like Pharmacare, the NDP made Pharmacare a, a big central pillar of their campaign. I would imagine they're going to want the liberals to push ahead with that a little faster than they had previously planned to. Well, I know there's going to be lots to look for in the days ahead. Stuart, thanks for your time. Thank you. 10.3 is produced by Carson Jarama. Theme music by Bryce Hall. Thanks to my guest, Stuart Thompson. More from him at nationalpost.com. I'm Dave Breckenridge. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.